0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Markle, and coming up on the program, we'll visit multicultural Ybor City.
1: So we met up with Ybor in uh, Key West and said, Hey, there's this place that's up north. They've got a new train system. Um, they have a port. I think it would work really well for you. And Ybor agreed.
0: We'll discuss the only existing copy of East Florida's 1812 Patriot Constitution. There was a smaller
2: conflict. It's separate from the War of 1812 that was happening right on our our soil, right in, in northeast Florida. And we'll talk about 19th century travel in Florida.
0: All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. In the mid-1880s, Henry Plant was extending his railway system into the small pioneer settlement of Tampa, Florida. In addition to making Tampa accessible by rail, Plant expanded the port and built luxury hotels in the area. Around that same time, Vincente Martinez Ibor moved his cigar manufacturing operation from Key West to the Tampa area, establishing Ibor City elizabeth mccoy is curator of programs and education for the ybor city museum
1: he was a cigar maker that had a cigar factory in cuba and then he moved it to key west and was having some problems with labor unrest and some some being on a small island type problems and uh, he had a business partner in new york that was coming down looking for guava uh, a place to grow guava and look, came through florida and, and saw the area in tampa right by the port and thought that it would work really well for ybor though he found it wouldn't really work well for his guava trees at all um, so he met up with ybor in uh, key west and said hey there's this place that's up north they've got a new train system um, they have a port i think it would work really well for you and Ebor agreed so he came up and he bought 40 acres and started to lay out the plans for his for his cigar town
0: as Ebor built his city based around cigar manufacturing henry plant continued developing the tampa area as well Plants Tampa Bay Hotel is now the University of Tampa. Both plants and Ybor's entrepreneurial vision helped to establish West Florida as we know it. Ybor brought Spanish and Cuban influences to the area that remain today. Chantal Havia is president of the Ybor City Museum Society.
3: Mr. Ybor actually is from uh, Valencia, Spain, but uh, as Liz mentioned, he was uh, manufacturing cigars in Cuba and then Key West, and there was such political unrest that he needed a better place to build his cigars. And so when uh, Gavino Gutierrez brought him to Tampa in uh, 1885, he said, this is the place. He actually, in a period of about one year, uh, he created a grid for this, for Ybor City, which is sort of like a little first planned community. He built housing for the cigar workers, and then he brought them from Cuba and Spain and ultimately from a couple of um, little towns in Sicily.
0: Although Ybor City was primarily populated by Spanish and Cuban cigar workers, it was truly a multi-ethnic community. Elizabeth McCoy and Chantel Havia.
1: There were groups that came from Sicily, um, but there were also small groups from both Germany and from Romania, a Romanian Jew contingency that also found Ybor City um, and contributed to it, not only into the cigar industry, but also um, in the businesses that helped support the city. Because when Ybor City was built, it was basically built in a swamp. Um, so there weren't any uh, you know other amenities already here. Basically everything had to be made in order to support this large cigar industry. So all the grocery stores and the clothing shops and, and, and restaurants, all of that had to come from somewhere um and all of these different groups brought interesting elements to that whole picture
3: one of the interesting things about ybor city and very often it's portrayed as a cuban community and certainly there were quite a number of cubans who worked in who came here and worked in the cigar factories but at one time there were about 14,000 spaniards in tampa by about 1930 and it was the third largest spanish not Spanish-speaking, but Spaniards from Spain, population in the United States. So I think sometimes that's not recognized. uh, And they contributed uh, to about half the revenues uh, of Tampa in the early days of Ybor City.
0: When Stetson Kennedy traveled throughout Florida in the late 1930s and early 1940s collecting oral histories for the WPA, he recorded interviews in Ybor City. In his book, Palmetto Country, Kennedy writes about the very unique community institutions of Ybor City, including mutual aid societies and social clubs.
1: And what made the mutual aid societies so interesting was that they were not only social clubs, so they provided a sort of social outlet and sense of community for the people. Um, They also provided some other vital services, um, banking, um, medical services, um, and this was all done in in a cooperative setting. Um, So when you paid your dues to be a member of the club, by virtue of doing that, you then were, you know, gained access to the hospitals and the pharmacies and the banking facilities, and so you really were given um, entree into some very, uh, you know, useful um, amenities that you might not have had access to otherwise. Um, at the time, the hospitals that were associated with um, the the two major Spanish mutual aid societies, the Centro Estoriano and the Centro Espanol, um, those two hospitals were deemed the the most. Uh, modern and well-equipped of any of the, of the hospitals in the whole city so and people were able to get their care for a fraction of the cost that they would have at other municipal hospitals so it was a pretty interesting setup that they had and again like you said it was really a model for for other societies that sprang up in other more northern
3: cities we often refer to it as here in Igor City as cradle to grave service because the minute someone was born into a family they fell under the plan of the, the head of the household and this was for 25 cents a week that uh, they would get everything from the not only the health care but they had uh, the spaniards alone had four cemeteries the italians have their own cemeteries where that's why we call it cradle to grave you were taken care of if you lost your job they would come to your rescue to help you with that as well. So it was uh, it was a great way to not only socialize with your own, but to be cared for in a new land that probably was a little bit inhospitable at first.
0: From the late 1800s through the first three decades of the 20th century, the diverse residents of Ybor City thrived. The cigar industry brought millions of dollars to West Florida annually until Ebor City entered a period of decline in 1930. Elizabeth McCoy.
1: There were a number of factors, just like any other city in the United States, the Great Depression had a huge impact on Ybor City as well. Um, But also at around the same time, um, the cigar industry in Ybor City was a hand rolling operation. um, And that was part of its mystique, was that it was this very high quality tobacco rolled in this very specialized way. um, And that commanded a lot of respect. But then the machine age came about and cigars started to be made by Machines much cheaper than they could be done by hand, and the cigarette also gained a lot of popularity. And so, that combined with economic decline led to sort of a decline in people's desire to spend a lot of money on something like a cigar. Um, and the hand rolling business just sort of tumbled. Um, and it's, once the cigar industry started to fall apart and world wars started to happen, <laughs> the Second World War in particular, um, people start, you know. People moved out of the the area when the GIs came back. um, They were given money to move into brand new houses, but that Ybor was an older community at that time. So it just, a confluence of things sort of came together and made it so that the community started to break apart.
0: During the so-called urban renewal of the 1960s, many historic structures in Ybor City were demolished, some to make way for Interstate 4. Many of the city's beautiful brick streets with granite curbs were destroyed by widening. By the 1970s, though, people became more aware of the historic value of Ybor City, and the area entered a renaissance of sorts. One institution that held on through it all is the Columbia Restaurant, which opened in Ybor City in 1905. As Chantal Havia explains, the Columbia is still an anchor for the community.
3: It is indeed. It brings a lot of tourism uh, to Ybor City. Um, we very often, when we are giving museum tours at the Ybor City Museum State Park, Well, um, we could spend half our day standing outside saying, the Columbia's that way, (laughs) you know, because it's kind of the must see and must visit when you come here. So they're really good about bringing a lot of visitors to Emor City. Frankly, we also have a lot of very other interesting places that are historic that you can uh, get traditional and typical foods, but that's the iconic one.
0: As historic preservation efforts emerged in the 1970s and 80s, Ybor City was revitalized. As Elizabeth McCoy points out, many of the core elements that make the community unique have remained in place for more than a century.
1: In addition to something like the Columbia, um, a lot of the longstanding standing institutions, the cultural institutions have remained. Um, many of the mutual aid societies or the social groups that, that developed mutual aid societies st- are still here. The Centro Suriano. Uh, La Union Martin Maceo, the Italian club, the Cuban club, they're all still here. Um, most of them are in the buildings that they built at the beginning of the last century. Um, so there is a sort of longstanding sense of community um, going on. But as far as the sort of historic preservation movement as it were, um, yeah, there are, every day there are businesses that are moving in and, and rather than bulldozing a building are taking the time and the money to rehabilitate it and, and keep the gem. Um, and we have organizations like the Barrio Latino that step in and make sure that any new construction adheres to a certain look um, and, and helps to really maintain the this, this sort of cityscape um, of Ybor City.
0: The Ybor City Museum State Park was established in 1982 to preserve, promote, and celebrate Ybor City heritage. The museum is in an historic building that was originally a bakery.
1: It was the, the La Joven Bakery originally and now it's referred to as the Ferlita Bakery. Um, And it's from 1917, the building is. So it makes it, I believe, the second oldest bakery in Ybor behind La Segunda Central, which is on the other side of Ybor. That one predates it by about two years. Um, But yeah, if you uh, stroll through the museum, the original ovens in the back are still intact. um, So you can get a really good idea of sort of the sense of space of the bakery. And um, the the ovens themselves are really neat because they accommodated the, the Cuban bread that's typical of Ybor City, which is several feet long. Um, and so the ovens are kind of giant in order to to make large batches of these, this long loaf of bread. So it's, a, it's an interesting building. And I'm glad that it was able to be preserved, again, like many of the buildings in Ybor are. It's preserved and repurposed, but not lost.
0: The exhibits and artifacts on display at the Ybor City Museum focus on the Spanish, Cuban, Italian, Jewish, and German groups who established Ybor City, One area of the museum recreates a cigar factory.
1: That's a really neat area, and people uh, can really get a sense of what it might have been like to be in one of these factories. It's one thing to look at it from the outside, but it's another to look at it from the inside. Um, The rolling floors um, were giant. Hundreds of people sitting shoulder-to-shoulder rolling at these long tables. Um, And the recreation that we've done of the rolling floor um, has a couple of the actual rolling tables um, set in front of a large scale photograph of a, a, a historic, you know, photograph of the rolling floor, so you can get sort of a sense of scale of what it might have been like to be on that floor. Um, and it also shows the lector stand. Um, hundreds of men sitting in the room all day rolling cigars would get mighty boring. Um, and to to help keep people on task and to keep their minds occupied, um, the lector would sit on a raised dais and would read. Basically, all day, um, they would read fiction, they would read the newspapers they would read pamphlets that people were circulating they would tell stories um, so it was really an interesting figure in all of the cigar factories and and would get people's mouth talking like I said they would talk about politics they would talk about modern plays they would read them uh, you know popular works of fiction so uh it, all of that is represented in that, in that little diorama that we have set up.
0: Also part of the Ybor City Museum State Park Complex is a garden and three casitas, or little houses. Vicente Martinez Ybor made the inexpensive houses available to factory workers, and one is now open to the public.
1: And we have uh, set it up so that it looks as though a cigar worker's family was actually living in it. Um, so it has period-specific furnishings, um, a children's room that has um, their clothing and toys, um, and then a kitchen area um, that have all been again they, they have period artifacts um, and when we take people through it we we like to point out you know a lot mostly the differences that you would see between now and then. Um, uh, it's a good thing for the kids when when kids come on field trips, it's interesting for them to try to transport themselves into the past, Um, it's one thing for them to read the panels and hear the history but it's another when we can put them in a situation where they actually have to compare it to their own lives and it seems to make a really big impact on them.
0: Elizabeth McCoy is curator of programs and education and Chantal Havia is president of the Ybor City Museum Society
2: Quererte, ti.
0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at MyFloridaHistory.org to find books about Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, become a member of the Florida Historical Society, and much more. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, you have a fascinating document here, the only existing
2: copy of East Florida's 1812 Patriot Constitution. Yeah, that's right. And this is a little known chapter in Florida's history, uh, but it's really a fascinating tale of of war and and deceit and diplomacy that uh, plays out on kind of a micro scale within East Florida. And it all takes place at the turn of the 19th century. Uh, Many Americans will, uh, of course, remember from their their, uh, history courses the uh, history of the War of 1812. Uh, The United States and the British are are fighting mainly around the uh, uh, northern part of the country. But there was a smaller conflict that's separate from the War of 1812 that was happening right on our our soil, right in in northeast Florida. And that's what we call the, the Patriot War, the Patriot Rebellion. And it, it gets lost in the broader context of the War of 1812, but it really is its own separate conflict. Uh, and it stems from the uh, the waning power of the Spanish colonial government in East Florida at the time. If you remember, we're, we're at, at this point the Spanish uh, monarchy in Spain is is locked in the Napoleonic Wars, and their their power is um, uh, much less than it was at, at the 18th century when they acquired Florida from the British in 1783. So the Spanish government has very little resources to allocate to the small. Colonial outpost uh, in in East and West Florida, so there's only a small group of of Spanish soldiers who are stationed here, and also a number of planters who are living in the Spanish territory. Well, at this point, the united states is is fairly young, but there are a number of settlers who are living along the southern border with this Spanish colony of East and West Florida, uh, mainly in, in the Georgia uh, area. And they're uh, looking across the border and, and uh, really looking to to stake their claim uh, and to take and seize control of this, um, what they see as a, as a powerless government that is uh, harboring runaway slaves from their plantations and arming them, because the Spanish at that time had an African-American militia that was pr- protecting St. Augustine. And many of these uh, Uh, Georgians who they would later uh, label themselves as as patriots um, decided that that there was something that needed to be done about that and and, uh, one of the uh, gentlemen who was leading this uh, insurrection was a guy named George Matthews who was previously governor of, of uh, of Georgia and decided that he was going to assemble a, a military force. And in early 1812, uh, he was able to, to muster up a few hundred men, and they drove across the uh, the Florida border and, and actually captured Fernandina and Amelia Island, and then made their way to, uh, to St. Augustine.
0: Now, we often think of uh, constitutions as, as unifying documents, but there's some pretty divisive language, some pretty strong language in this one.
2: Yeah, that's right. So after uh, Matthews and his uh, men took Fernandina and Amelia Island and they moved into St. Augustine, they decided they needed to set up a formal government. The idea was that uh, once they moved into Florida, a number of the planters and uh, Uh, Folks who were living in the Spanish territory uh, would revolt against their Spanish colonial powers and they would join with the patriots uh, and they can incite this kind of of revolution. Uh, So they drafted their own constitution. And that's what we're looking at today. We have the only existing copy of this written constitution. Uh, And in the uh, preamble, the the proclamation rather, uh, you're right. There's some very divisive language and uh, in particular here at the end, Uh, The Patriots write, "...there can be but two parties, friends and enemies." those that are not with us will be treated as foes. And it's uh, fairly direct. I mean, there's really no reading between the lines there. Um, the uh, The military action was really aimed at, at forcibly taking uh, the East Florida territory. And in fact, they felt that they had done so and they're declaring the Republic of East Florida. And the Constitution goes into great detail about how the government will be set up, uh, all the, the technical aspects of, of running a government. Uh, but again, they're, they're taking this by force. So um, one of the biggest issues issues That uh, Matthews and, and his men uh, encountered was that once they invaded Florida, they had hoped that the U.S. government, uh, under the leadership of, of James Madison, would rally against the Patriot cause and send forces to Florida. Uh, unfortunately, that didn't happen. Although there were a few gunboats who were involved uh, in taking Fernandina, they didn't get that uh, the open endorsement of the U.S. government. So they were left really out on their own. Uh, but um, But the hope was that they could incite this uh, revolution and then hand this brand new territory to the U.S. government.
0: Well, so things didn't really go the Patriots' way. What was the final outcome of this conflict?
2: Well, that's right. As you know, we're, we aren't the Republic of Florida, uh, and Florida was not uh, acquired by the United States until 1821 uh, with the uh, Adams-O'Niss Treaty. Uh, but unfortunately, as I said before, the, the patriots uh, made their way to St. Augustine, and, and uh, during a, there was a series of raids. They attacked the city of St. Augustine, there were a number of guerrilla uh, skirmishes that occurred between the uh, Spanish militia. Uh, the uh, patriots who were encamped just outside of St. Augustine but also a number of uh, Seminole Indian tribes who were allied with the Spanish government who were also attacking these patriots who they felt were infringing on their land Uh, so you had a number of different groups In this frontier environment uh, fighting for the same territory but uh, after about two years by 1814 uh, the war of 1812 had completely dominated um, the uh, US government's uh, focus so there there was no force sent to East Florida eventually the Patriots uh, got tired disillusioned and they just decided to give up and headed back north to Georgia
0: well great a fascinating document thanks Ben Sure, thank you. Fendi Biasi is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in COCO. This is Florida Frontiers. As Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com reports, the development of travel opportunities in Florida depended upon tourists coming to the state.
4: By the 1870s and 1880s, for example, 1886, there were 74 steamboats on the St. Johns River alone, and there were also steamboats on the Kissimmee River and the Indian River and the Suwannee River.
5: That was Dr. Tracy Revels from Warford College telling me about late 19th century steamboats in Florida. Not only did steamboats get passengers from place to place in the last decades of the 19th century, but so did railroads. In order to make these new burgeoning transportation networks viable, early investors and state boosters needed people to patronize them more than the population living in the state at the time needed to get from place to place. The answer was tourists. Dr. Revel tells us about the early developers and their interest in creating a tourist economy in 19th century Florida.
4: Tourism was promoted a lot by the railroads. People who were building railroads and wanted to set up hotels, etc., along the railroads did a lot of the early tourist promotion and creating a lot of the early images of Florida. So some of the people who came on those early railroads were people who were looking to buy property or maybe set up a business. But a lot of the other people who were coming were wealthy Americans who wanted to come to Florida as tourists. But by the 1880s, we see a lot more sportsmen coming to Florida. And some of them would come on the railroads and then uh, leave the railroad and go into the interior for their hunting and their fishing excursions. Of course by the 1880s we have Henry Plant with the Florida Southern Railroad and then going into the 1890s, Henry Flagler with the Florida East Coast Railway. And those of course are two titans in building Florida and opening up the interior of Florida and southern Florida, not just to tourists, but also other forms of development that could come along those railroads.
5: You probably have traveled by plane or train at some time in your life, maybe even on a cruise ship. One of the things early developers had to offer on railroads and steamships were amenities. Not only places to rest and relax, but sometimes sleep and eat. Dr. Revels tells us about what visitors on early steamship travel could have expected to see on a trip through Florida's rivers and lakes
4: of the passengers on these boats would have probably been affluent Americans, maybe not the wealthiest of the wealthy, but certainly well-heeled, well-to-do people, who would have enjoyed a leisurely trip down one of these rivers, probably stopping at some point at a hotel and spending a few nights there. Heading maybe to a spring, Silver Springs was the great tourist destination of the uh, post-Civil War period. And so a lot of those boats were making that journey down to Silver Springs to see that wonder of nature. A lot of very famous people, including uh, President Grant, made that trip. And so, on this trip, which would take a couple of days, you certainly would have had time to sit down and eat and have a nice meal, and that would be represented by the the China.
5: In the last decade of the Florida tourist economy, you probably have come across the idea of the all-inclusive experience. This, of course, applies to places like Disney, Universal, and even cruise ships that provide for tourists the experiences of including meals, Living quarters, and entertainment. In the late 19th century, steamships had to provide the tourist with an experience they would not have someplace else. Dr. Revels tells us what that might have been like.
4: They would probably have had very small rooms on board the steamboats. They would have had meals on board the steamboat, and they might have also had some entertainment, not necessarily like we think of the movie Showboat, because the Florida steamboats were very small. But they probably would have had someone playing a banjo, singing some songs. Because it was the post-Civil War period, one of the things that especially northern guests would have been sort of curious about is what was African-American life like. And so someone who might have been a former slave might have earned some extra money by telling stories or playing music as they made the trip down. And, of course, the real big entertainment, along with the alligators, was they would travel at night. So they would often light these sort of bonfires, embrasures on the, the boat, and they would go through the, the, the really narrow parts of the river at night, which must have been really a great excitement for these people. It must have been a little bit creepy and amazing to see Florida in that sort of way.
5: That was Dr. Tracy Revels. I interviewed her and others for the podcast series, A History of Central Florida. You could find it on iTunes. I'm Robert Castanello with Florida Frontiers.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. You can find us right here every week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Join the daily conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Markle.